Good morning. Well, I told someone after the 9.30 service that it's an interesting feeling to stand up and preach in the church where you grew up. It's kind of humbling because you're preaching to people who used to put you in time out <laughs> back in boys' choir and boys' brigade. So, But it's a joy to preach God's Word this morning. And I'm grateful to Pastor Moody for this opportunity. So let's pray together as we begin to look at God's Word. Lord, we do ask that your Word would be abundantly clear to us this morning. Give us hearts that are ready to receive it. Give us even more love for our Savior who died for us and now reigns above And we ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and strength and humility to order every part of our lives under his reign. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, most of us have at one time or another been almost overcome with an emotion, a feeling, or an experience. Maybe it was the first time you saw the Grand Canyon Not in a picture, but with your own eyes up close. For those of you who are married, maybe it was your wedding day. I remember very clearly about two and a half years ago, seeing my wife Jeannie walking down the aisle toward me and losing it completely up on stage. For many of you here who know Christ as Lord and Savior, there has probably been a time or times when your heart has gotten just a glimpse of the glory of God. Maybe you were reading or studying God's word and you were led to worship Jesus as you realized again clearly that he is the risen glorious king who is sitting now at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. In other words, you had a Colossians chapter 3 moment. You wanted with all of your heart to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Colossians 3.1. You grasped what the Apostle Paul was trying to make so clear to the church at Colossae, the preeminence of Christ over all things, the rule in heaven of the glorious Savior who will one day return in glory to both judge this world and gather his people together. But my guess is that many of you have known what it is like to lose that fervor, that emotion, that sense of being overcome in the midst of the stuff of everyday life. A glorious, worshipful moment during your devotions when you reveled in the glory of Jesus the King is interrupted by a crying baby waking up from a nap. My wife and I are learning something about that. The magical romance of a wedding ceremony is shattered by that first big argument. That sweeping panoramic view of the Grand Canyon is almost ruined by the bickering kids in the back seat as you drive away. In other words, the deeply spiritual things of life often seem to bump up, bump heads with the practical, don't they? What does it mean to seek the things that are above or to set my mind on things that are above when I'm dealing with a difficult child? or a difficult mother, or a difficult husband, or a difficult boss. 
does the picture of the reigning and risen Christ, as beautiful as that is, touch my life practically? C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which we're studying this summer in our book study for Hayek's, imagines the devil trying to destroy the faith of a man on these very grounds. An elder devil, Screwtape, counsels his young devil apprentice to attack his young man as he sits in church. Here's what he says. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At his present stage, you see, he has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which in fact is largely pictorial. We deal with this disconnect, this difficulty in many ways, don't we? Many different kinds of ways. Some people abandon spirituality altogether. They focus only on what is practical. Or we write books about how to become more radical with our faith. And many of those books are wonderful. But some can, if they are not very careful, give the impression that there is something else. Something else that we need to make our faith more spiritual, emotional, or radical. Something that's outside the realms of everyday life. They do not ultimately answer the question of how deep spiritual truth touches real, practical life and relationships. Paul was fighting a similar impulse in the city of Colossae. Believers in the church there were being threatened by a very dangerous heresy. One that asserted that Jesus was not ultimately enough to save people and to sustain them in a life lived for him. According to Colossians chapter 2, these people were practicing all kinds of asceticism, trying to find truth through visions, and even some of them were worshiping angels. They were wrong, but they certainly were very spiritual. But could it be that these people in their obsession with spiritual things, radical religion, if you will, had begun to abandon the practical obedience and love of Jesus in the most relevant place, the home? It seems so. And so Paul gives the Colossian church a household code right here near the end of his letter to them. Many of your Bibles may title this section, Rules for Christian Households. Let's read this passage together. It's Colossians 3.18 through 4.1. Colossians 3.18 to 4.1. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, 
not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Well, the passage we have in front of us today is made up of three reciprocal exhortations relating to relationships. The relationships move from closest, husband and wife, to more distant, slave and master. The first member in each pair is exhorted to submission, and the second is exhorted regarding responsibility. Now, if you had lived in Colossae when this letter was written, you would have been very familiar with this kind of household code. In both the Hellenistic and the Jewish cultures of the day, such codes were used to govern and guide the basic moral and family duties within the household. But any Colossian Christian listening to Paul's household code as this letter was read to the church would have immediately noticed two striking differences from the norm. First, a member of the church at Colossae would have noticed that none of the parties that are called to submission are viewed as any less valuable than those to whom they submit. In fact, the rights and dignity of wives, children, and slaves are protected by Paul's code. Husbands, parents, and masters are called to great accountability in the way they treat those under their authority. Second, and perhaps even more striking, is the overwhelmingly Christ-centered nature of Paul's code for Christian households. Hellenistic households of the day would similarly ask wives to submit to their husbands because the order of nature demanded it. Children similarly should submit to their parents for that would be fitting according to the natural order. It is at this point that Paul's God-centered, Christ-centered focus for all activities and relationships in the household would have seemed drastically different from the codes of the day. Listen to Paul's repeated phrase throughout the passage. Verse 18, in the Lord. Verse 20, the Lord. Verse 22, the Lord. Verse 23, for the Lord. Verse 24, from the Lord, the Lord Christ. And chapter 4, verse 1, a master in heaven. This household code is completely focused and ordered under the lordship of the reigning Christ. This is in stark contrast with the Hellenistic or even Jewish codes of the day. Christians are commanded to submit or respect, not just because it is fitting, that is according to nature's design, but as is fitting in the Lord. This Lord that Paul preaches does not want to remain distant. He wants to come into the household. This passage is a call to order all relational and family life under the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one, Colossians 1.15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the one for whom all things were created, Colossians 1.17. 
Jesus is the one who has reconciled us to God in his body of flesh by his death. Colossians 1.22. And Jesus is the one who is now seated at the right hand of God. Colossians 3.1. What Paul is telling us now is that all of this glorious truth about Jesus, these deep and moving spiritual realities, must find their way into the practical nitty-gritty relationships of our everyday lives in the household. Because Jesus is our Savior, because this Savior now rules from the throne in heaven, we must order every human relationship first under His glorious rule. So, what does this look like in the household relationships that Paul mentions Let's look at each of these three pairs. First, wives and husbands. Let's look again at 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Just two short commands, ones that are always easy to obey, right? Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. We've already noted earlier how striking the command of the husbands would have sounded to the Colossian listeners' ears. Husbands are held accountable too, to love their wives and to not be harsh. And while it is not explicit in this phrase, the lordship of Christ is clearly implicit in this command that Paul gives to husbands. Husbands, our responsibility in leading our families is positioned squarely under the lordship and authority of Jesus. We serve a Lord who has not dealt harshly with us, who has not treated us as our sins deserve. We lead our families as we are led by Him. I want to call your attention then to that phrase that follows the wives called a submission. How are they to submit? as is fitting in the Lord. As I think about my own marriage in light of this verse, I think about how encouraging it is to me that my wife Jeannie submits to my leadership in the home and especially in spiritual matters in our family. She allows me to be the spiritual head of our home and joyfully submits. But, Her submission is probably most encouraging and often very humbling when it is done in spite of my failings and in spite of my sin. In other words, Jeannie encourages me by submitting to my leadership even when I prove myself again and again to be a sinful, flawed man. Why does she do that? She does it because she's submitting not ultimately to me, but to the Lord Jesus Christ who sits enthroned in heaven. She follows me as is fitting, not to the natural order of things, but in the Lord. Christian wives, your call to submission is not ultimately about the godliness or maturity or even wisdom of your husband, although you should certainly challenge and pray for your husband in these things. Your submission to your husband 
is ultimately about your worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. You follow your husband not because he is perfect, but because Jesus is perfect. The second pair we come to is children and parents, verses 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. In the position of authority, held accountable for the way they deal gently with their children. They're not to provoke, not to be unreasonable for the sake of exasperating their children. Why? Because they are not the ones finally and ultimately on the throne. Christ is. Children then, like wives, are commanded by the Apostle Paul to submit in a certain way to a person, yes, but ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. Their obedience in everything is to be done not first and foremost because it makes their parents happy, but because it makes the Lord Jesus happy. Now, most of you know that I'm the high school pastor here. Very occasionally, I come across students who are having issues with their parents. Only very occasionally. One of the key things that teenage students tend to miss is that their obedience, respect, and attitude toward their parents actually should have very little to do with their parents themselves. It should be all about the student's relationship with Jesus. So my word to these students, these very few students, as unpopular as it sometimes is, is that their submission and obedience to mom and dad has to be about loving and pleasing their Savior, not about whether mom and dad are being completely fair. Mom and dad's fairness is a different issue. It's an issue that they will be held accountable for, as we've talked about earlier. But students... Children, I know there's a lot of high school students in here this hour. Your obedience to your parents is not about them first. It's about Jesus first. Your relationship with your family needs to be first about your Savior who sits on the throne. You obey because you want to please Him. Well, finally, we come to the most difficult part of the passage. Slaves and masters, our third pair. You might be a bit surprised to see that Paul spends more time, more words on this relationship. But before we get into that, we need to make just a few remarks about slavery in this time period so we know exactly what we're talking about here. First, this progression that Paul makes in this passage from the marriage relationship to the parent-child relationship to the relationship between slaves and masters would have made a lot of sense to his listeners. The slaves of a family often lived with the family, sometimes almost as members of the family. So these are all household relationships that Paul is talking about. Think household servants more than slaves. Second, we are not here talking about anything that resembles the ugly and sinful race-based slavery that took place in America for so many years. Slaves in the town of Colossae could have been of any ethnicity, and it wouldn't have been uncommon for a Jewish Christian to own Jewish slaves 
who had become slaves because of financial struggles or some other kind of calamity. While abuse certainly happened sometimes in slave and master relationships because masters were certainly in a place of power to take advantage of slaves, many of the relationships were quite peaceful. Some were also temporary as a man or woman could purchase their freedom after a period of years. With that being said, let's look at Paul's words for this relationship, 3.22 to 4.1. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Those who are in slavery, with masters in positions of authority over them, are called to obey them in everything. And Paul does not leave room for any misunderstanding as to why and for whom this obedience is required. Slaves are to obey, fearing the Lord, for the Lord, and trusting that the Lord is the one who holds the ultimate reward for their labor. Then, in case they had missed the point, he concludes, you are serving the Lord Christ. Note that Paul leaves no room for revenge No room for bitter thoughts of retribution toward even an unfair or cruel master. In verse 25, he gently reminds them that God will judge. God will sort it all out. But in the meantime, these servants must view their service to their earthly masters as literally the same thing as service to the reigning Lord Jesus. There's no distinction. I wonder how many of us view our work in that way. Do you see faithful, diligent, excellent work in your office, even for a haughty or verbally abusive boss, as literally the same thing as service to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Do you get to 5 p.m. on a Tuesday and say, Jesus, my boss is a jerk, but that day of sweat and phone calls and meetings, that was for you and you alone. Praise God that we can offer him our work and know that we are literally serving the Lord Christ in all we do. Paul then has a final word to the masters of slaves who live at Colossae. And it is again a reminder to them that though they are masters, they too have a master. And it's a word to any of us who are in positions of authority wield that authority with care. Put yourself under the authority of Christ your Savior as you then humbly exert authority and leadership over others. Be ruled by Jesus and under His rule, you will then rule well over others. Many have pointed out that Philemon the master of the, the slave Onesimus, who became such a good friend and support of the Apostle Paul, lived in Colossae. So perhaps Paul's slightly longer discussion of slave-master relations 
was directed at men like him, reminding them that they ought to be first ruled by Jesus, that they might rule justly and fairly over those under their authority. Well, if you look back to the beginning of chapter 3, you'll see that it begins with a slightly scary word, the word if. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And the discussion moves to verse 17 where Paul utters this famous command, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. For those who have been raised with Christ, for those who have found salvation and forgiveness at the foot of his cross, for those who joyfully acknowledge his resurrected glorious reign both now and forever, everyday relationships change. They fundamentally change. They take on new meaning and new excitement. Wives love their flawed, imperfect husbands as they joyfully submit in steadfast, worshipful devotion to their Savior. Children joyfully obey their strict parents because they see it ultimately as worship to Jesus. Those in positions of authority deal humbly, gently, and fairly with those they lead because they are led by a humble and gentle Savior. Those under authority submit and work diligently, not for a person, but for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me put this in a slightly different way. If you really know, love, and worship Jesus, the people closest to you ought to be most affected. Your family ought to know more than anyone in the world that Jesus rules your heart and your life. Your high-flying spiritual life ought to touch down practically as the preeminent Lord of all things rules every relationship and every seemingly mundane detail of your life. Jesus wants your worship on Sundays, absolutely, but he wants to come home with you too. He wants in to your relationships, to everything that happens in your household, at your office. Here's the question to ask yourself today. Is the death of Jesus for you and the reign of Jesus over all things not only affecting but fundamentally shaping every human relationship you have beginning with the closest ones? If the spiritual part of your life is not touching the practical, is not touching the everyday relationships, you may need to question what your spirituality really is. Because the Jesus who died for us, the Jesus who wants to rule over us, demands that the most basic and practical parts of our lives be radically shaped and formed by his sacrificial love and sovereign rule. For those who truly belong to Jesus, deep spiritual truth touches 
real, practical life. Every relationship falls under the glorious reign of the Savior. The call to submission, the call to responsibility, both are guided and shaped by the reigning Savior who died and lives for us. May we be a people radically committed to the rule of our crucified and risen Lord over us. And may those closest to us feel that commitment with the greatest intensity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you do sit enthroned at the right hand of the Father, you who once died and now live for us. Lord, may we give you our worship and our praise on Sundays. And Lord, give us humble, receptive hearts to allow you to permeate more and more every part of our lives, every relationship for your glory. You have given all to us and you demand our joyful obedience and submission. We ask these things for your glory and for our eternal good. Amen.